Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the city of Lagos and beyond renewed by the gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Good morning, church. Um, I've been given the privilege of reading God's holy word to us from the book of Romans, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. When I am done reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. I commend you to our, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Kenkria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, why? It's not, this is not Ezra. <laughs> what did she read? Uh, okay, you are clapping for me for giving us such a short passage. You can do that better. You can do it better. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. You're welcome to church. A special welcome to those who are worshiping with us for the first time. We lo- we love to have you around, and we hope that it will be a blessed time with us this morning. My name is Femi Oshunui, and I get privilege of being one of the pastors here. Um. And so today, today's um, sermon is really important um, for a number of reasons that we will soon know. But I maybe should start with asking a question. That have you ever been destabilized by anything in your life? Like just something happened and you were destabilized. You were going along very okay. But something happened and all of a sudden you couldn't get your bearings. Something like that happened to me this Tuesday. I was, um, well, some of you may know that I, I've been, over the last maybe year, but particularly this year, I, I started a kind of diet, kind of diet. I thought, you know, let's be more fit for me. You know, um, all the food that you eat is good for you. Uh, so what I started to do was to eat at certain times, eat certain things at certain times, and not eat at certain times. So, for instance, I threw away carbs, carbohydrates, in the evening, put it away. Dinner is not that. And then I eat a bit earlier. So, this Tuesday, I'd eaten. I'd eaten my nice salad. It was a good salad. And grilled fish. I was really feeling very, you know, healthy and, as I said, fit for me. And then about two hours after that, I was about to close for the day, so I was coming out of my office, uh, my home office, and there are a number of routine things that I would do, just put some cups outside and all that. And as I came out, it happened. I was destabilized. Because I smelled something. And what I smelled, all I can say is it's my weakness. I just... Entered, have you smelled something that didn't go through your, it went through your nose and entered your skull, your brain. 
I smelled of father's sauce. <laughs> now, let me explain to you. You see, there's a father's sauce and there's a father's sauce. There's a father's sauce that sticks. There's a father's sauce that flows. You understand? A father's sauce that sticks, that's where, you know, condition, they say condition that make crayfish bend. Right, so some of other sauce, you know how you go to some parties, it's sticking on the egg, it's sticking the different things. But you know the one that flows, the one that has, is full of the oil. The Bible calls it the oil of gladness. <laughs> it has buttered the pomo, buttered the, the shaki, everything. And let me tell you, I knew this was the kind of father, I didn't see it, I could smell it. And I knew the kind of a father I was. And then, I remember the words of our Lord, he said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The one thing you have to know about the devil is that he comes in different shapes and sizes, but he also comes in different smells. I smelled the devil that day. <laughs> so I was destabilized. I started thinking about, and you know with your father's sauce, you're not only going to think about your father's sauce, you're going to think of what? The rice. Carbohydrates. You understand. So it was, it was a difficult time. I was destabilized, and, but I get back in. So I made it through. I made it through. I didn't. I didn't go downstairs. I didn't ask. I didn't. I was. I did. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can't fail you guys now. If Pastor is not falling up and down, so so I made it through. But I made it through. I did. I, I have to confess to you. I wasn't stable. I eventually became stabilized the next afternoon on Wednesday when I devoured it. I devoured it. I you know totally. It's not the first and will not be the last time that food has destabilized people. In my case, it was an individual, but in some people's cases, it's a group of people. You see, in the early church, when the church was just born, they had gone through a number of things. First of all, they were on, you know, uh, feeling high because God had done miracles among them, lots of conversions, all of that. But very soon, they started facing opposition externally. But that didn't, they didn't deter the church. They continued their mission until food came into the situation. You see, the church at that point was made up of what you call home Jews and Jackpot, sorry, diasporic Jews, right? People that had gone, but were coming back. They called the Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews. And the Hebraic Jews were somewhat in charge. And so the Hellenistic Jews started saying, our widows, you've not been giving them food. And it was going to tear the church apart. How do I know that? Because... When you, the things that are written in the book of Acts, they are very selected. It's a 30-year period. They don't just put anything there that's just for fancy, for reasons. It's because it was significant. It was going to tear the church apart. So what did the leadership, the apostles do in response to this destabilization? They created another tier of leadership. We see all of this in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, 3 to 4, you see that they called, they said, seek out faithful men right, that are full of the spirit and let them attend to this thing. And they were able to do it. And once they did it, a church that was destabilized all of a sudden became stabilized. And what was the effect of it in verse 7? It says that there was an amplification of the word of God and there was an amplification of, um, of conversion of unbelievers. In other words, the mission of God was advanced because stability was brought into a place where there was destabilization. Now, this somewhat responsive tier of leadership that was created all of a sudden became a standard in the church. It eventually evolved into an office or an official position that we now call the deacon. 
Now, I'm here to tell you that city church is not stable, thank God. But there is no such thing as too much, inst- uh, too much stability. And that's why we thank God that we've had deacons in the past and we still have, uh, we have like, four deacons in this church, but we're about to double it by, appoint- by at least appointing four more. Now, but because at the time that we'd appointed deacons, uh, some of us who are with us today were not there. And so it's important that I teach about what that, the role in the church is. But I'll tell you this, this sermon is not just about learning about deacons. It's about learning about stability. How does stability function in our own lives personally? But you can also take principles from here and apply it to your different organizations. If you're leading an organization or maybe you're leading a team within an organization or you're just leading a small business, how does the thing that the church did, how does that help us to stabilize our lives and also the various spheres of leadership. So I hope you'll join me as we run through this and eventually I will talk to you about who the nominees are and invite you into the process. Amen? Alright, so this sermon is an attempt to answer the question posed in the title. What's the title? Um, it is, How Does God Stabilize His Church? And we're going to see that He stabilizes His church through stable people, through a stable system, and through a stable servant. Through stable people, through a stable system, and through a stable servant. So let's pray. Lord, we now ask for your presence. Right? We are mortal men, <laughs> but you are an awesome God. And so awesome God, manifest yourself in light and in teaching this morning through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. All right. I know how many of you have heard of the author George Orwell wrote a famous book, 1984, thinking about the future. <laughs> Imagine when 1984 was the distant future. But he also wrote a very popular book called Animal Farm. I know how many of us read Animal Farm, watched the cartoon and all of that, but Animal Farm was, essentially, it was a, it was a fictional novel against communism. And it was talking about people who desire communism and that wanted an equal society. And so it was set within the context of a farm. And in that farm, the human beings were leading. But now the animals took over because, you know, the, there, was a, there, was a, there was this thing, a, a lack of equality between the human beings and the animals. So the animals revolted. They wanted a classless society. They wanted an equal society. And so they created an equal society among animals. All animals are equal. Now as time went on, the thing changed because the pigs took over. They were the ones, really. And then a famous quip came up that says, all animals are equal, except some are more equal than others. It's a fantastic phrase. And in fact, I've used it in other aspects of my life. One thing I can tell you, when it comes to Nigerian cities, I have realized all cities are equal. But some are more equal than others. (laughs) If you can call it a city, Modakeke. Well, but, but think about it. How, how, how do I know? For instance, let's say, let's, say, let's say you are someone living in, I don't know, random choice, Ilori. And as an Ilori person, you want to go to Frankfurt. Frankfurt, Frankfurt, Germany. What would you do? You can't, will you go to the airport in Ilori? No. You will come down to Lagos, and then you'll catch a flight, a Lufthansa flight, that will take you directly to where? Frankfurt. You see, Ilori and Lagos are equal, but some are more equal than others. 
And maybe you're a frequent traveler from Ilori. At that point, you become to Lagos regularly, and you start having some Lagosian friends, maybe some Lagosian people that you patronize. Maybe you know a particular Lagosian boat driver, you know a particular Lagosian booker woman, all of those things. But maybe if you're a frequent traveler that was a Christian, and then you knew a church that was in Lagos, maybe you attend their midweek services, maybe you attend their gospel communities, all of a sudden you start knowing some of the people that are in the Christians in Lagos. That's exactly what happens with Paul. You see, at one point in his ministry, Paul was in Corinth. And because of Paul's standing, he often had to travel. But Corinth was, only, it was an inland city. And for him to go to other parts of the Mediterranean, he couldn't just do it from Corinth. He has to go to the nearest seaport. Its name is Centrea. Look at it in Acts 18, verse 18. Acts 18, verse 18. Paul stayed in, on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters. He wanted to sail to Syria. But before him to sail to Syria, um, what did he have to do? Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at where? Centrea. Frequent traveler. Had to go to the seaport. But you see, in Centrea, there was a church there. And it was in that church that he met a woman called Phoebe. Who was she? Well, in the reading that Demo read for us, we are told that she's a sister. So she's in a church. She's a sister, but she's a little bit more than that. Let me tell you who she is. She's a stable person. What do I mean by that? The reason why a lot of organizations, a lot of teams, many times are not very stable is not because they don't have the right policies. Let me quickly tell you what it is. It's because they are filled or they are led by unstable people. What do I mean by unstable people? I mean particularly emotionally unstable people. And sometimes we've gone through that in our lives. We're emotionally unstable because of different things. Who are these emotionally unstable people? Well, these are people who get angry too quickly or people who get sad perennially. Or maybe put it in another way, these are people whose inconsistent behavior happens perpetually. And that causes the instability that's in them. After a while, once they start work, uh, working with people, eventually it starts to spread and it causes instability in the team, it causes instability in the organization, it can cause instability in the church. And you know what often happens sometimes, think about an unstable person living in an organization, they eventually want to work somewhere else, and so when they apply, everything looks good on the CV. What do they ask for next? Reference. And so now they have to reach out to the other company, who is meant to give them a letter of commendation. Now, you know, in Nigeria, sometimes what we do is that in order to solve our problem, we move our problem to somebody else. So we write a very good letter of commendation. But usually, we're not doing that out of truth. The people that we commend are the people who we can say, no, this person was actually fantastic. This is what this person did, all of those things. We really only, in truth, commend stable people. Listen to what Paul says about Phoebe. Give me 16 verse 1 again. It says, 16 verse 1, our text, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. He could commend her. Who was he commending her to? He was commending her to another church, the church in Rome. Rome well, that's why it's the letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome. He was commending her to that church. Why? Because of the things that she did, because of who she was. 
You know what Paul says about her? He says to the church in Rome, please, I need you to assist this woman. I need you to help her. Why? Because she has a reputation of being a helper. In verse 2, he says, she was a benefactor. A benefactor not just to many people, but she was a benefactor to me. Are you seeing? This woman was noted for her generosity. And so Paul is saying, this kind of stable person, I think, needs some help. Please help her. Now, some of us may be saying something like this. Well, I'm sure she was helping people. Why? Because she was, she possessed a lot. She was a wealthy woman. Well, let me tell you this. She most likely was a wealthy woman. And in fact, the truth is, what happened is because Centria is the seaport city, many people are coming from different parts of the region of Achaia than they want to travel. And at that time, there was no social media. There were not many hotels. So usually, wealthy people would help people to come in and give them hospitality and all that. So she was helping people externally, but she was also helping people within her church. And I'm telling you that wealth is not the only reason why people help. You can have wealth, but if you are not stable internally, you will not be able to give in generosity. It is people who are stable internally that will not use their wealth as a form of security and say, hey, Omar, I don't know when I'll have this thing again. No, I have been poor before. Let me keep and hoard everything. It's somebody that is much more stable and secure that will say, well, I know by God's grace I'll be able to make more, but this person needs it. Our generosity flows out of our stability. That's what we learn from this woman. In fact, when Paul is talking about the, 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 the qualifications of a deacon, he says in 1 Timothy uh, 3, uh, is it, uh, 13? No, 12. That, no, 10. That they should be tested first. So she's a deacon of the church because she was tested first before she served. So the question becomes, how can I become emotionally stable then? Because... If that's all we're saying, because maybe you, are, you have some issues with that. Let me quickly comment. I'm not going to spend more time on this. I've said a few of this earlier before. I said it in um, a Renew seminar last time, so when the message comes out. And I think in a few messages after this year, we'll talk about it. But let me quickly give you three things. Three things that lead to emotional stability. Why? And these three things are under one heading, basically, is this. When you look at the qualifications of a deacon... In 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 to 12, what you will find is that almost virtually everything that is there really doesn't focus on emotions per se. It, focus on, it focuses on a person's spiritual maturity. So what do you need to be emotionally stable? You need to be spiritually stable. What do you need for emotional maturity? You need a certain level of spiritual maturity. How can you do that? These three things. Commit to these three things. One, commit to spiritual disciplines. Two, commit to community. Three, commit or consider committing to getting therapy. Now, the last one, getting therapy, I, I recommend that. And if anybody has ever told you as Christians we can't get therapy, please just don't listen to that. The knowledge that comes through therapy is the same knowledge that is given by God. It's the same way God gives people knowledge of mathematics. God, people, if you say I'm a Christian, uh, and all, all the knowledge comes from God. There is no verse in the Bible per se that has ever built a bridge or has started a road, and we come on all of them. Are you following me? And if physical, if doc physicians are doctors of the body, then therapists, in some ways, are doctors helping us with our mental capacities. And so if we're in severe situations because of things that have happened in our past, our traumas and all of those things, sometimes things are so deep, I want to ask that you seek the intervention 
of a therapist. As a church, we've helped people, supported people, recommended people to therapists that we're involved in. Now, having said that, some of us don't need to get there. If we just do the first two, commit to rhythms of spiritual discipline and also community, they are almost like eating healthily. They are almost like taking your multivitamins. Taking your multivitamins and eating healthily, most of the time you don't even remember what you ate. It's not very sexy until problem comes. You see, many times what spiritual disciplines are meant to do is to give us a sense of reality of God that is with us. That we can hear him, that we can fellowship with him. Again, nothing like the skies open or anything like that. No, it's just that you can have this stable relationship that you know that your father is here or your father is there. So that in the hardest of times, you don't start questioning so many different things. You've already been meeting with him. You know the sound of his voice. Someone almost joked. They said that if you don't learn how to uh, uh, hear the voice of God, it can be tragic. Imagine Abraham. Abraham was hearing God's voice. And Abraham heard God to, uh, he's going to get a promise. And okay, Abraham heard God that he was going to have a child. Abraham heard God that he should go and sacrifice Isaac. And when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, when Abraham is about to use the dagger to now slay Isaac, and God says, stop. Imagine if Abraham did not know how to hear God. We need to hear God in our most difficult moments. The promises of God given to us in the Bible in different ways. How do you get that? You cannot just switch it on. You are committed to a life of discipline. But the other thing is community. Again, when we say community, sometimes people see it as uh, we are recommending some kind of bullet, um, uh, silver bullet to answer our problems. No, what's community? It's just showing up regularly to be with people. But here's the point. It is in the showing up regularly to be with people that you start forming relationships with them. And when you form those relationships over time, when you hit a very terrible place, you actually have somebody to call. You know, one of the most difficult things is when we hit problems in our lives, why a lot of people are unstable is they don't know how to talk to God and they don't know, they don't have anybody to talk to. At some of the most difficult times in my life, the thing that caused me, stopped me from going into depression was just somebody that just says, I will be with you. You are not going through this alone. It's okay. And that sense of confidence is true. There's somebody with me. It's the difference between somebody that is saying, there's no one with me, nobody cares about me. Blah. The problem is you never formed relationships with anybody over a period of time. So you want to be emotionally stable, as I said. Commit to spiritual disciplines. Commit to a community. And consider committing to therapy if things, to therapy if things have gotten terrible. Now, let's quickly move on to the second point. Through a stable system. If you find people who are stable, here's what Paul is saying. He says, ordain them. Why ordain them? What does that even mean? Well, to ordain them, to ordain them assumes that there is a structure there. Now, listen to me very closely. If you want a stable system, it is not enough to just have stable people. You need a structure. Why? Many people like to say something like this, that church is not an organization. It's an, it's a what? It's a what? Ah, you've not heard that. Uh, it's an organism. They say it's not an organization. The church is not an organization. It's an organism. To which I often say, I have never met an organism that was not organized. 
In other words, the organization still is important for the organism to flow. Remember the early church? When they reorganized, what happened? There was, a, there was life that flowed out from the church. And so if the church is meant to be functional, it's meant to be organized properly because a stable system happens when you put stable people in an organized structure. So when it says ordain the people, it's saying these stable people need to be put within an organized leadership structure. Let me give you, let's show one proof of that. So Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and after he has acknowledged the people, the Christians that are there, he then says to, God, all, to all God's holy people in Christ, uh, in Christ Jesus at Philippi, all the holy people then what? Together with the overseers and deacons. The overseers are elders or pastors. So in this church, we have three of us, right? But then he also says the deacons. There is a structure that is there, an ordained structure. Now, very quickly, this doesn't mean these are the only two kinds of leaders you have in a church. No. In Acts chapter 6, remember, it wasn't because they had a revelation of something called deacons that they put them there. There was a problem and they solved the problem and they anticipated this problem may happen again. So let us put a system there. In the same way, for us, for many of the things we want to achieve, we have other kinds of leaders. We have gospel community leaders. We have affinity group leaders. We have unit head leaders, all the different things. And we'll continue to create more forms of leadership and promote leadership. However, for what we see in the Bible, these two remain in terms of ordination, in terms of, irrespective of all the other kinds of leaders you have, you should always have these two. So that's the first thing about stability of the system. But let me add something else, and I'll spend a bit more time on this. Stability isn't just about the temporary. Stability is about longevity. In other words, how do I know when a business is stable? It's not that they have readily registered as CAC, as some people like to do. And they, they, they register, they put it all over. Hey, you put it all over social media. You just register. It doesn't mean you have a business. Or worse off is... You have finally gotten your first round of funding, and then you throw a party. You have not sold a product. You have not offered a service. Nobody has paid for anything, but you are celebrating a round of service. No, that doesn't tell me your business is going to be stable. Your business is stable when, or your organization is stable, and the same thing with the church. When it is stable, you produce the same thing over a period of time. Longevity is important. Are you following me? So if we want to stabilize things by putting the right people in the right place, we have to still ask the question, how can they be stable over a long period of time? And I think that the reason for ordination, there are three reasons for ordination that indirectly answer, give you the, the means of stabilizing over a period of time. What are these three reasons? The three reasons for ordination. One, recognition. Two, imitation. Three, inspiration. Recognition, imitation, and inspiration. So let's start with recognition. What do we mean by that? Now, some people will say something like this. Ordination, why is that important? Why do we have to start dividing the church? Aren't we all saints? Aren't we all equal, like Animal Farm? Right? And now you're now creating a sort of, but some people are more equal than others. Well, the first reason we do it is because is in the Bible. But the second reason is this. Be very careful how we pursue quote-unquote nobility and say it's a noble thing to keep everything equal and not separate the church. No. Actually, Paul will tell you it's not a noble thing to, it's a, not a noble thing to not recognize people 
for exceptional things they've done. Look at 1 Timothy 3 verse 13 again. It says that these people are people who have served well. Those who have served well. So he says, recognize them. You know, when Paul says in the back of our text that Phoebe is a deacon of the church in Centria, remember, he is commending, he's recognizing Phoebe in a church that she is not in on the basis that she was first recognized in her own church. Should I say that again? He's giving her recognition in a church that she doesn't go to on the basis that she was first recognized in another church. Phoebe, a deacon, so she's been recognized in that church, of the church in Centria. That means the Centrian church had already recognized her. If you want a system or a, a, a team or a system that you know will not last long, here's what I can tell you you can do. People are doing things exceptionally. Don't make any comment about it. You know what? what, what why it wouldn't last is this. You are creating a system of underappreciation. And when you create a system of underappreciation, people start feeling like they are being taken for granted. And when they feel like they are being taken for granted, eventually, that kills their morale. They may either leave or do something. It is important to recognize that. Maybe I'll give you this example. A real-life example. In 1997, in Chicago, there was a guy who was, no doubt, feeling really bad. Why was he feeling bad? He had just been betrayed by his mentor. You see, what had happened was that he had served under this mentor. The mentor was the CEO, right? He had served under this mentor for a long period of time, and everybody recognized that he was instrumental in the growth of the organization. And in that same year, through a lot of the things that he did, that organization that he worked for was able to uh, conduct a series of mergers and acquisitions and then made that organization the largest bank in America. It was called Citigroup. And that time when he did that, it made, obviously, his boss the most powerful man, uh, banker in America. Everyone knew, it had literally been promised to him that he was eventually going to take over as CEO. So here they are, they are celebrating this year, they've done all of that thing. And that same year that they conducted that, what happened? He fired him. So he was devastated. Underappreciated. Unrecognized. The man's name, the mentor's name was Sandy Boyle, and the man's name was Jamie Dimon. That's the one that was betrayed. So what happens after? He's down. But you know what Jamie does? There's a bank called Bank One. It's teaching on the verge of bankruptcy. He takes over as the CEO. In two years, a bank that was on, on the verge of bankruptcy, he turns it around to not just making profit, but they are making hundreds of millions of dollars profit in two years. Very quickly, there's another bank whose CEO is going to soon retire. They capture the attention of that bank. That bank decides they want Jamie, so what they did was to acquire Bank One, and eventually, after one year, they made Jamie the CEO of that bank. The name of that bank was J.P. Morgan and Chase. And immediately, it became the second largest bank in America. You know where this is going. Eventually, he comes in, he looks at the books, 
and he sees how things are going in the market. At that point, banks and financial institutions are backing a certain kind of derivative that was making the headways that time was something to do with subprime mortgages. Jim Diamond looks at it, and against all that was going on through in the market, not just in America, but in Europe, he decides we are not going to put our money behind it. Some of us in financial institutions know exactly what happened in 2007, 2008. Eventually, the bubble burst. And the whole world system, was banking system, was in trouble. JP Morgan and Chase, because they were not exposed to that, were very strong. Eventually, the government started begging them, please come and buy this bank. The first bank I think they bought was a bank called Bear Stearns. Eventually, Washington Mutual, they were just buying banks. Buying banks. Why? Because they were stable. After the financial crisis, coming out of it, they had bought so many banks, they were so big, J.P. Morgan and Chase eventually became the largest bank in America. And Jimmy Diamond became the most powerful banker in America since that time up until today. What am I saying? Citigroup created a culture where certain people were underappreciated. And even though it was stable as the largest bank in America, it happened just for a while. If, guys, if we don't have this this understanding of creating a culture where people feel appreciated eventually, and by appreciation I mean recognized, eventually whatever height you are at will not be stable. This is how, partly how God stabilizes his church. People who have served well get recognized. Amen? The second one is imitation. This is all about culture building. Because as somebody said, culture, uh, Peter Drucker says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. The culture of any group of people is the most important factor in determining how they behave. So how do you build culture? Oh, I know how to build culture now. What's the culture? Tell me, and I'll tell the people that I lead. Instruction, nope. Instruction has its place, but it is probably the least effective way on its own, the least effective way of building culture. One of the most powerful ways is this. It is by what we call the most, the most fundamental and primal way of learning, imitation. People see somebody doing a thing and they just copy. That's how babies learn. But also, if I come into a company and I see how people, everybody comes in at 9.30 a.m. and people can leave at 3 p.m. After a while, it will be like, am I the one that betrayed Jesus? You will follow suit because that's the culture that is there. So we imitate the culture. But Dickens, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 8, is, he says they must be worthy of respect. They are worthy of respect because they must first be respectable. They must have lives that make the elders say, these are people we want you to watch. Ordination is a way of highlighting them as models for people to follow. That's why in Hebrews 13 verse 7, it gives a, 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 a general uh, exhortation to, 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 the, to, the, to Christians about their leader. It says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and do what? Imitate their faith. And so what, what happens is this. Some people have quipped, and I like this quip. It's not fully accurate, but it's, it's not bad. That elders, elders serve by leading but deacons lead by serving. And so when you ordain them, you are saying, look at this person. We need a culture of 
service to be stable over a period of time, not a culture of consumption. And so he's saying, because these people have served well, we will recognize them so that people can look at them and say, here's what to do. And let me tell you about some of the things that the deacons in this church do and the nominees that we are bringing forward. They are generous with their time. Like, they are, to a fault, generous with their time. Advising people, being at different places, all of that. They are generous with their money. They give so much. These people, some of the ways they, they are generous with their time, often they are the first people to, in the hospital when somebody is sick. Not even the, not the elders. Many times they are the first people to go and comfort the grieving. Many times some of the people that they comfort, they don't even really know in the church. They help in, the, you see them serving on the, in the service. They help organize things. They serve in committees. They do so many different things. In other words, here's what's happening. They are helping us to stabilize this church by modeling and sustaining a culture of service. Can I tell you, we have deacons in this church. Look at them. Watch how they behave and imitate them. Amen? The third one is inspiration. And by inspiration, I'm saying, without, I don't know how to say it better, that say, if you're a deacon, it comes with perks. It comes with perks. They are rewarded. Now, there's one particular deacon. I don't know why they were motivated to give the deacon the name that he has. Because people from Modakeke should not have that name. Right? For years, was one of the first deacons to be ordained. For years, he's been looking for benefits. And he's been saying, when are deacons going to be paid? When are deacons going to be paid? I have an answer for him. Never. <laughs> you see, the benefits are not monetary benefits. But they are benefits that are way more than that. And I want to give you three of them because they all have to do with the faith. You see, they are inspired with these gains. They are inspired with these gains so that they can get, we can get more, they can continually serve. What are the gains? They gain excellent standing in the faith. They gain assurance in the faith and they gain a boost in their faith. Excellent standing in the faith, assurance in their faith and a boost in their faith. Excellent standing. If you look at 1 Timothy 3 verse 13 again, it says, those who have served well gain an excellent standing. This is very um, related to the recognition part. But let me just put it this way. For me, and I try to model this so that all of you can follow. If somebody becomes a deacon today, most of the time, 90% of the time, I'll call them deacon this. I'll call them deacon that. Now, somebody will say, why? Titles, we're all brothers and sisters. Eh, I know. But at the same time, it says they are worthy of respect. And we know that sometimes titles are ways of putting respect. It's not just for the person, it is for the office. So when you know there is an office that is there when we call the name, we are giving respect. It's just like, I, don't, I know some of us do it, I don't think it's right. You don't go ahead and just say, Baba Jide Somolu. Ah, you run an election first. You don't go ahead and just say, Bola Metu. No. Whether you voted for them or not, it's not the case. There is an office. They have legally entered into that office. It's President Tinobu. It's Governor Sonwolu. Even if you don't like the person, give respect to the office. Now, the thing is, when Paul says that she's worthy, look at verse 2, 16 verse 2. He says, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people. In other words, he's saying, these people who have been recognized in this place, that have been ordained to this place, 
there's a way the world will honor people that is different. People that are anti, you know, authority and everything. But you, the Lord's people, there's a way that is worthy. Now, someone will say, that must that be uh, calling them by the name? You don't have to. I said it's modeling, but I think that is one way that universally we practice things. I call them dick in that. Because they have served excellently. And those who serve excellently deserve an excellent standing. Amen? Second one is this. They get, they gain assurance in their faith. Now, somebody says, this one is a bit controversial, right? Verse 13b, look at verse 13b of 1 Timothy 13. And great assurance. Those who have served will gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. I'm like, wait, I thought if I want to be assured of my faith that I'm in Christ, I need to look at what he has done for me on Calvary. Yes. Or I need to get the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Yes. But there, there's no one way of slicing a cut. There's no one way of gaining your assurance in the faith. There are other ways. Just like, there's no, I know my wife loves me. How do I know that? Ah, it's a variety of ways. It's, what, it's the things that she says. It's the things that she does. And how she stays. You see, sometimes I know my wife loves me because she tells me she loves me. She says nice things. She sends me right, good texts. But some days that's not good enough. So some days it is that she will say, you are free to have offered a rice and sauce today. You know that kind of uh, wonderful woman, right? Sometimes it's what she sacrifices, what she buys for me, is what she does. But sometimes what she says and what she does is not enough. It's just the fact that, ah, oh, this babe hasn't left me. She stays. I'm assured of our love through a variety of ways. And many times also God assures us at times. And they can sometimes will doubt. They are human beings. They may doubt and they can't say. But the church has recognized me not just as a Christian, as someone to serve in this office. So even in my place of doubt, I'm taking the comfort that comes from God through his people by appointing me in this place. They gain an assurance in their faith. Amen? And then the third one is they gain a boost in their faith. Let me tell you something. Again, I'm saying this, to be, up, to be ordained in an office doesn't make you inhuman. It doesn't make you superhuman. You're still human. And many times, Dickens will feel a sense of doubt about, ah, maybe they're just tired. I don't feel like serving and doing all of these things again. Or even sometimes, I don't feel, why do I have to behave like a Christian? They are going through temptations. There are certain things. And they have pressures. And you know what the ordination does for them? The ordination does this for them. It gives them an additional layer of conviction for how they are meant to behave, but also for their call. You see, As I said, like all of us, they go through doubts, or sometimes they lose um, a sense in which they are called to serve. But when they remember, but I am this person, it gives them an impetus. You know, sometimes I have had the, I don't know, honor, privilege, or what have you. Like maybe sometimes I know a deacon is not behaving properly. Maybe there's a certain way they acted publicly that I'm like, ah. Now, I can, as a pastor, just come and say stuff like, hey, put up, like, fix up. You shouldn't do stuff like that. But almost all the time, and a few times that's happened, I don't go to them and say that. You know what I say? I say, but you're an officer of the church. I can expect that from other people, but not from you. Why? You're an officer of the church. I can, ex I can see other people doing that, but oil has come on you. And they remember. See, sometimes the burden of leadership is precisely you don't just live as anybody lives. 
Some people say, what's the difference between the number one and number two? Like number two is a leader, number one is a leader. But you, by the time you get to it, number one in a particular place, you see that the burden of maybe people that are uh, employed, it really falls on you. And so you can't, you can't just say anything. Bank, uh, some of the uh, bank CEOs cannot just come and just say, ah, you know what? Um, I'm not sure our bank, I'm doing everything I can. I'm not sure our bank will survive next week. Ah, you know what will happen in the stock market? If the CEO says it, if a normal manager says it, it's, so he has to live his life differently because of the responsibility put on him. But what happens is that when they are being tempted away, they can look to the fact that they were appointed, they were ordained, and say, ah, that gives them an additional impetus for them to go back. Paul says to Timothy, and as a leader, watch your life and your teaching, for by it you will be able to save not just yourself, but also others. So there are these perks that come. This leads me to my last point. There are these perks that come. But then the third thing is that it's through a stable servant. And maybe somebody is here is now thinking, ah, where you put this thing? I sort of like this dicking stuff. Because the dicking is sort of like a midway between the pastor and normal congregant. I, I get all you are saying. I should have ambition. Careful, curated ambition. You know why? I don't want to be a pastor. I, pastor, I don't want to talk too much. Pastors, they get dragged on Twitter and all of those kind of things. So even though they get perks of respect in the church, they get too much wahala. However, I can escape anonymity all around. I can get respect and all these perks. And at the same time, I don't have to get all these problems if I just become a deacon. Somebody say ambition. Ambition, that's careful ambition. Now, if you are thinking in that way, I don't blame you too much because the way we normally, you know, we are faced with that. Some of us, it reminds me of situations of an interview. And you know, if you go for a job interview, many times what happens is the inevitable ambition question comes. Where do you see yourself in, where do you see yourself what? In five years' time. What are your career goals for this particular job? Well, it reminds me of somebody who faced that thing, and maybe you are answering in this same way that this person did. So, let, let, let what are your career goals? I mean, where do you see yourself five years from now? Where well, I see myself in five years from now? Ah, the truth is that, the truth is, I'm not somebody that can see the future. So, okay. it's not something that I can predict. But then, my pastor used to see vision. He used to see vision. Okay. So, I don't know, if you really require it, maybe next time I can ask him that if you pray to God to help me see my destiny, then if I will come back here to report it fine. But for myself, I don't really know anything. I don't know. So, still tell me, what are your career goals? What I wish to be in my career, I just want to be chairman. I don't, I don't wish to be chairman. You just want to be chairman? I don't wish to be chairman. Okay, that's yeah. good. I just want to be a chairman too. Just a shaman. And many times, you see, when we think about, again, leadership, we think about leadership, let's be honest, quite frankly, from a positional standpoint, the functional standpoint. And that turn in itself totally transforms how you lead and the effect of that leadership. It's not just this lady that was facing this. Jesus himself was facing it. At some point, after Jesus has spoken to his disciples about kingdom, kingdom, there's a coming kingdom, blah, blah, ah, and they're like, oh, I've given up everything and all of that. Because there were 12, but two of them were brothers. They say, oh, let's get ahead. 
So he said, Jesus, see, eh? we're going to ask you something, but you must promise us you will not refuse us. You know when somebody says, I'm going to ask something, but promise, promise you give me. Jesus said, you know, because you want to hear the thing, but you don't want to promise. So Jesus says, say what it is. And I said, eh, okay. Jesus, see, when your kingdom comes, this is Mark chapter 10, 37. When your kingdom comes, eh, see, you are the king. But one of us will just want to be Otumba on your right hand. And the other one on the left hand. Give it to any of us. In fact, later he said that when the other disciples heard it, they were indignant. They were indignant. They were like, ah, these people are not humble. Now lie. They were indignant because they didn't go and ask first. They wanted to be shaman. And when we think about leadership from this standpoint, we invert how leadership was meant to be used. Because at that point, we are saying, let me get to this particular position so that when I get to this particular position, I will enjoy perks. People will be respecting me up and down. I said respect is good, but when you pursue respect for respect's sake, you have inverted and you have corrupted that pursuit. And so what happens, Jesus rebukes them in Mark chapter 10, verse 42 to 44. He says, look, the whole world in nations, Gentile nations, have gone awry because of this kind of leadership. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles or the nations, lord it over them. You see, looking for position, if you just want the position, eventually you become a tyrant. You lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them, 1343. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be what? Your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Jesus is saying, don't you understand it? Before positional leadership comes, is functional leadership. Leadership is about serving. And he's saying again that the nations have gone, they are, part of the way he was saying that the Gentiles can be seen as non-followers of God is the effect of this kind of leadership. This kind of leadership is self-serving. This is what the Bible calls sin. It creates an instability of injustice. And you see injustice all around in groups of people because people just want to be served and they want the perks of that positional leadership. He says, not so among you. See, when God looks at the world and he sees all the injustices of the world and he says, how can this thing be solved? When I see all this bad kind of leadership, how can it be solved? God doesn't say leadership doesn't matter. God says, no, good leadership matters. So God says, I'm going to look for somebody that will bring justice to the nations. And when God started considering who is going to bring justice to the nations, God did not look for an emperor. God did not look for an orator. God did not look for a senator. God did not look for even a pastor. You know what God looked for? His servant. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will do what? He will bring justice to the nations. Who is that servant? That servant is Jesus. The one who was rebuking his disciples, telling them this is not how leadership is. It is about service. It is about trying to make people better. It is service to God and service to people. And he demonstrated it. So in, when he finished rebuking them, he completed it in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 saying this. He says, for even the son of man, the most highly exalted human being, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve 
the leader of all leaders served by giving his life as a ransom for many. I don't know if you are here in this place. Your life is destabilized because you have allowed sin to lord it over you. And God has been calling you. He says, there is a servant that I sent. And that servant can give you the spiritual and eternal stability that you need. That will give you the emotional stability that you can build upon. His name is Jesus. He says, come. Paul says in Romans 16 verse 25. He says, he says, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message of Christ Jesus which I preach. That message is what can stabilize you. That message is what can establish you. That there was a servant that came not to be served, not to judge you for your life and condemn you. He said, no, I'll be condemned in your place so that you can better. All you need to do is turn to him and say, truly, you are the servant sent for me. But for those of us who say we've accepted Christ and we're still experiencing some kind of instability, let me, tell, let me give you a counterintuitive thing to do, serve better. You see, the deacons who we are going to nominate and who, uh, by God's grace, will ordain, what they are meant to do is to follow Christ, this servant leader, by serving in their lives. That's what they've been doing and they are, meant, they are called to keep doing. But they are meant to be models for us. We are all called to serve. Many times when people just want to be served, they create instability in their lives. Start serving people and you see much more stability come. Amen? And so Jesus offers us the model. He is the true servant that serves. But one more thing. I said that leadership should not start with position. It should start with function. But honestly, when you functionally serve over and over again, eventually you will be recognized in a position. How do I know that? This Jesus that served by giving his life, eventually he did not remain dead. In fact, he said God brought him from the dead and now God has highly exalted him and has given him a name, a position above all that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. And in the same way, these people who have, who have we are nominating and we want to put in a particular position, we are honoring them for their service. They never came in and said they want to be deacons. But we have seen how they've served and we said, no, let us recognize them. And let me tell you, in every sphere of your life, just aim to serve. Lead by serving and eventually you will be recognized. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City